same one. Turkey in a straw? Welcome to Mountain Talk. I'm your host, Rachel Geringer. Today's show is all about food. We begin with a recorded conversation between Chef Travis Milton, who grew up in southwest Virginia, and food writer Sherry Castle, who was raised in western North Carolina. Travis stopped by the studio earlier this week, and Sherry joined us by phone. They share stories about who taught them to cook, their own definitions of Appalachian cuisine, some innovative new takes on the food of our region, and a few of their own Thanksgiving favorites. Our program today wraps up with some Apple Shop staff members' favorite family recipes for the Thanksgiving holiday. You might want to grab a snack, because this program is sure to make you hungry. We hope you enjoy. So you all know each other, right? Oh, for a for hundred years. Yeah, Sherry and I go way back. Yeah. Cool. yeah. How do you know each other? Uh, you want to you take that one? No, I want you to take that one because <laughs> I'm all curious where you, pin, where you put the first pen in. <laughs> oh, the first pen, the first pen is a, 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 a Southern Foodways Alliance event um, where I was just totally fanboying Sherry. She was doing a biscuit demo, um, so... Every biscuit that I make has a piece of my grandmother and a piece of Sherry Castle in it, and my mom. Aww. Um, Aww. But uh, I and so I did, we didn't actually get to meet, and then there was another Southern Foodways Alliance because both of us um, have have always been fairly involved in that, and in Richmond, where I actually I believe I believe you were at the Richmond one, weren't you? I was, but you know I'm thinking where we maybe have had our first chat. Was the one in Bristol that summer one in Bristol? I'm pretty we were sure it was. And if were I rec- you there? Yeah, I was. And if I recall correctly, it was over uh, the 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 trout dish that Sean made. Exactly. Um, and we we were talking there, and it, it was just kind of a, a, a first meeting. But then uh, Richmond, I, I I got to talk to you a little bit more, yep. and then yep. it just kind of steadily increased over time until I right. became an annoying force in your life. <laughs> Well, it's it's a joyous annoying force. It really is. So yeah, we don't get to hang out as much as we wish we did. But but I also know that Travis is one of those people that if I text him or call him, he is calling right back, and I like that a lot. Hundred <laughs> percent. Well, that's great. Well, so um, for folks who don't know y'all by name, maybe you could tell me sort of who you are, where you're from, where you live, and a little bit about what you do. Well, my name's Sherry Castle. <laughs> <laughs> I'll let you take. I'll let you go, Sherry. <laughs> okay. I feel like I'll know. You know what's my line? No, I'm Sherry <laughs> Castle. Um, I grew up in Watauga County, which is in the northwest corner of North Carolina, where Virginia, North Carolina, and Tennessee come together. It's the town where Boone is, and I actually went to elementary and high school in Boone. But the Castles are from a little community right on the state line called Zionville. And um, my grandparents lived there until right before I started school. And I like to say we were so close to Tennessee that although the house set in North Carolina, our cows lived 
in Tennessee. (laughs) Uh, And I uh, came down off the mountain to go to school about 100 years ago and have lived more or less around Chapel Hill since then, except for a short foray in Birmingham when I worked for a magazine down there. And I am mainly a food writer now. I mean, I do cook. I cook professionally, but not in a restaurant context. But I develop recipes. I write for books and magazine articles and just, you know, Somehow, I wound up doing that for a living. That's great. Yeah, that's pretty rad. Um, so, uh, I'm uh, my name's Travis Milton. Uh, I grew up in a tiny little town, uh, probably about 35, 40 minutes from here, uh, named Castlewood, which, oddly enough, another uh, tie that binds between uh, Miss Sherry Castle and I, her ancestors were some of the founders of Castlewood, Virginia. Yep. Ah. Um, yep. And uh, I uh, moved away in my early teens um, to Richmond, Virginia, um, started cooking. Um, while I was in Castlewood growing up, my great-grandparents had a little little tiny greasy spoon restaurant that my mom worked at. And she would pop me in a, a high chair and I'd peel potatoes with a, uh, uh, a plastic uh, to-go knife. So, so <laughs> restaurants were always something that was uh, completely ingrained in me. So I started working at a restaurant when I was 15. And then... then uh, I actually started teaching English, and I was working in radio and kind of tried to get out of the kitchens, and then I decided I hated teaching in public schools, so I went full bore into cooking and went to San Francisco and New York and Chicago and D.C. and tried to learn everything that I could because I never went to culinary school and um, ended up uh, realizing that what I really embraced culinary-wise was the food I grew up with here in Appalachia, so I wanted to move back here and do that food as opposed to doing it somewhere else and not letting the region reap any benefits that that it had so Hmm. that's that's i guess that's about it (laughs) cool um well so you just sort of got us started there talking a little bit about this but i wonder if you could both of you talk about some of your earliest food memories and some of the folks who taught you to cook Okay, I'll jump on that one first. I, it sounds cliche, but it's true. I was raised by a grandmother that could just flat out cook. I mean, it, it wasn't self-conscious. She was, she was just a cook because she had to be and sort of wanted to be. She enjoyed cooking up to a point. Um, and my, my actual mother doesn't cook at all. She was the generation that fled the farm as quickly as she could. And by golly, she got a job at the Chevrolet place and could afford to get her hair done on Saturdays and never looked back. <laughs> but my grandmother was a farm woman. I mean, you know, like, like the women of her generation were. And so I grew up with people that cooked their meals and raised a great big garden and all that. I have been cooking, you know, interested in cooking my whole life, but never occurred to do it professionally or anything like that. But I've always been curious. I've always had some sort of a sense of, you know, what people ate, said a little bit about what they are and what they valued. And um, so there was my grandmother. I started reading about cooking when I was very small. I would check cookbooks out of the library instead of Curious George and just, you know, always had an affinity for it and... So I, you know, guess I was born with a little bit of skill, and I've worked hard to try to make it a little bit better. Yeah, I've got a, I've got a fairly similar uh, kind of track as as, as Sherry growing up uh, here in Appalachia. I was, I was lucky enough to know my great great grandmother all the way uh, or five generations back. Um, wow! So I was, I was constantly surrounded with these just phenomenal women that, that did, you know, an amazing job of of 
of being an independent person and taking care of huge families and and you know just uh, mind blowing to me like the workload that that they had and and you know that translated also to the restaurant you know as I was growing up in the restaurant with my mom working there you know she was cooking and there were these these older ladies in the in the kitchen and you know they were you know I would I would run around and annoy them and you know try to figure out what they were doing and ask them questions and uh, you know, there was, there was, uh, an, an older African-American lady that worked there that, that had, you know, she taught me a lot of things. She taught me how to make like peanut soup, you know, down here, like she wow. would make peanut soup occasionally, um, which is something that's like not even remotely Appalachian. It, it, you know, it's got true ties to Africa, but then there was this older lady, Faye, who made real like Hungarian goulash, not like the macaroni and, mm. and, uh, ground beef. Like she made like real goulash and paprikash and, you know, it was, I was exposed to a lot of the, the, uh, the, the influencing factors of Appalachian food, like really, really early. Um, but I would say like my, my great grandmother on my mom's side and in, in wise, my great grandmother Wheatley, she like a lot of my earliest food memories are with her. And it was uh, being in the kitchen and watching her can and, and making uh she, she always made me Salisbury steak and a saucer of coffee. Like she wouldn't pour me coffee. She would cool it off and she put it in a saucer and I would essentially yeah. drink it like a cat. With lots of with <laughs> yeah. lots of cream and sugar, the opposite yeah. way I drink it now. My family did the same thing. Travis and I have talked about this. This thing about putting coffee in a saucer. My people called it sassetin the coffee, and they would yeah. sometimes drink it out of the saucer, and sometimes pour it back and forth. I think to cool it off a little bit. But this whole thing about drinking coffee out of a saucer, there's a vein in here that one of us needs to explore because I can't imagine just out of coincidence we're the only two people that grew up in Appalachia that happen to have families that did this. I agree, but at the same time, I. Th- I think that I've never like uh, you're you're one of the only ones I've ever met that did it, but I've never obviously met anyone that didn't grow up in Appalachia that that wasn't a thing, or you yeah. know that, that did that. So it's yeah, there's there's got to be something there that I've that's another rabbit hole that we need to go down. Right, right, <laughs> exactly. And you know I don't know about you, Travis, but when I was growing up, I didn't know I was eating Appalachian cuisine. I mean, no, absolutely not. Kid, no. You just think you're eating supper, you know. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until I got older, and moved away, and turned my back on all of it, and then had my humbling and turned back around to explore it, that I realized that there was such a thing as Appalachian food. When you're a kid, you're just eating what they put on the table. A hundred percent. You know, I didn't, I, it, you know, I've, I've told the story a lot of times, and I know you've heard it 10 million times, but, you know, the, the, the dawning moment for me was I was working in this, this amazing, very well-known kitchen in, in New York, and, and it dawned on me, you know, I was doing these, these crazy molecular gastronomy things, and, and, you know, I was so far detached from the food that I grew up eating. And that's all, that's all I wanted. That's all like I, I physically wanted to eat, but that's all like my soul wanted. Like the, you know, it was uh-huh. the honesty of it. And, and I had never, I'd never seen, you know, I'd never, you know, it was kind of like just cooking period for me because I was, I grew up in it and I was surrounded by it and I was ingrained in it. It just, it, you know, it took a long time for it to dawn on me how, special and important it was to me because it's it's kind of like that old the old like 1980s movie adage where the the guy's got the 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 friend that's a girl and and she likes him but he has no idea and he's chasing after the 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 cheerleader girl and then in the end he goes oh what i wanted was in front of me the whole time it's it was kind of like that for food for me it was was like a john hughes flick (laughs) <laughs> that is a wonderful analogy that I'm going to nab and use here on out. But the, my big, my big aha moment was is I had decided when I was going to get really serious and turn pro in cooking that I started going to Italy because I thought I wanted to be a really good Mediterranean and Italian cook. And I had this epiphany one morning up on a hillside, and 
you know, I come all the way around there, and the food that that resonated with me the most, that hit the spot, was almost a doppelganger of the food I grew up in the mountains of North Carolina. The terrain looked the same. There were tobacco fields and apple orchards and chestnut trees and things like that. And we were eating beans and greens and pig and corn and things like that. I thought, oh, my Lord, I've come halfway around the world to finally go back home, which, again, sounds like a bad 80s movie. <laughs> I have this John vision Cusack, in my mind. It would be like his mom or something like that. you know. But, but um, <laughs> And I and, and my, my big aha moments, which changed the trajectory not only of my career but of, of my life in many ways was that if those people in Italy had foodways and cultural practices and iconic dishes that were worthy of study and preservation, then maybe my people in our place did too. Hmm. 100%. That's that's a parallel that a lot of people I know draw is, is uh, you know, the Appalachian region because it's so sprawling and it's mountainous and there's varying terroir terrain varying growing conditions a lot of people compare it to you know the the regions of italy or or Mm -hmm. you know the regions of of uh even you know korea and japan because uh you know there's because of all those differing factors it's it's you know you go to northern west virginia you're not eating the same thing that you're eating in uh you know northern north carolina or southern georgia or anywhere so you know it's not this one amalgamous you know uh I believe uh, is it, it's it's other you or Ronnie that that's had this word stuck in my head monoculture, right? Um, right. It's it's totally not a monoculture. It's 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 more diverse than than a lot of people realize. And and you know if they look at it the same way they look at at you know Italy and seeing Tuscany and Florence and you know all these other regions, it's 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 not dissimilar in any way. No, it, it is not, and, there, it, and Appalachia is not a monoculture, but I would say that if you look at Appalachia, you know, especially central Appalachia, the foodways in our places are more similar to one another than our food is to the rest of the state to which we're attached. Oh, 100%. I'm going to have a lot more commonality with what you ate in Castlewood than I am with what people were eating in Wilmington and Charlotte. Oh, 100%. And it's yeah, yeah. exactly because the same way, you know, going going through Virginia all the way to to Richmond and and you know that that speaks to the the differentiation of, of terroir and what grows and mm-hmm. growing conditions mm-hmm. and that's that's one of the fascinating things about it for me. I agree. Well, I want to ask, ask a question here. So a lot of our listeners who will listen to this live on the radio will be real familiar with what you're talking about when you talk about <laughs> Appalachian food. But we sometimes have people listening online who might not know what are we even talking about when we're, when you're talking about Appalachian food when you're talking about these similarities for Central Appalachian food. So. I'd love to hear from both of you about what you sort of think of when you think of Appalachian food. I want you to go first this time, Travis. Well, you know what I'm going to say. You know, I'm <laughs> going to say I'm going to say I'm going to say greasy beans. Um, yep. yep. That's that's all. That's my my number one coolest thing. It's it's for those that that don't know. Uh, there's there's hundreds upon hundreds of of indigenous. Uh, varieties of heirloom pole beans that grow throughout Appalachia. You know, beans are a, a huge part of Appalachian food. And it's not just the the soup beans and cornbread that people, you know, might have a cursory knowledge of, you know, the pinto beans, because I don't think anyone even grows pinto beans down here. That was okay. that was kind of a food of, of subsistence. It was something to get by. But um, the pole beans that grow down here, you know, there's, there's varieties. There's preacher beans, greasy beans, wild goose beans, rattlesnake beans, 
turkey craws, tobacco worms. I, I could I could go on for an hour just naming off varieties of pole beans, but uh, my favorite is is the greasy bean. It's it's insanely versatile. It's got a high level of protein, so it's got this amazing, just beautiful flavor. And and they became so important because you know the the terrain down here. Um, for a long time, you know, it, it wasn't, it wasn't conducive to having a lot of cattle or a lot of, of stuff, but, and, you know, even if you did, you know, that was your source of income, not your source of food. If you held back a cow instead of selling it, then you were in a pretty bad spot. Um, so a lot of people, you know, their sources of proteins were predominantly beans and, and, you know, greasy beans, they go into, to pickle beans and, uh, you know, the, uh, shuck beans or leather britches, which is where you dry them and, and uh, you you rehydrate them and cook them, and, and they just take on this incredible incredible different form at that point, and uh, all these chemical reactions occur that you know they, they were drying them just for uh, preservation, but by drying them, this ambient yeast in the air uh, attaches a lot of the, the the chemical compounds change inside the bean and inside the husk of the bean, and you end up with a completely different flavor that a lot of people say is is more similar to pot roast than a bean. Um, and it's, it's these things that came out of just getting by that are, are, are insanely, insanely tasty at the same time, uh, that are, that are incredibly indicative of, of Appalachian food. And that's why the greasy beans so like iconic for me. And I would, I would say, you know, Travis talking about the beans, that, 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 that is part of it. To me, when I try to describe Appalachian food, I say it's not really Southern. I mean, if you look at a map, yes, Appalachia is in the Southeastern part of the United States, but in practice, we're not from around here. We, at our elevation and given our climate and our presence of winter, nowhere else in the South is winter a defining force the way that it is in Appalachia. When I was growing and up, my changed, mind was totally blown it, that I thought that the whole South had winter and the North didn't because when I went north to Richmond and they didn't have winter, <laughs> I didn't. I was like, okay, that that makes sense. And then in you know here because you're saying the elevation, I I, my, I was totally backwards. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but that just no, dawned no, that's on me. Funny. That's, that's, I also uh, love I, North exactly. to Richmond. <laughs> yeah, but because we had winter and, you know, a short growing season and rugged terrain, it wasn't just our proficiency as farmers, where I think that Appalachia is world-class. I mean, world-class is in food preservation. Some of the beans Travis was talking about our ways of preserving and fermenting and drying and pickling and putting up. Because if you've got 13 weeks a year to produce the food you've got to eat for 52 weeks a year, you get really good at preservation. And to me, when I think of Appalachian food, it's our preservation. It's our relatively limited but very diverse produce that we grew, our proficiency with pig, and uh, vinegar and black pepper. Vinegar and black pepper, absolutely. Yeah, if I was going to give somebody a taste of where I'm from, there would be some of those elements in every plate, without a doubt. Absolutely. Someone completely misquoted me um, while I was in Atlanta doing a food festival. Um, and I was, I was explaining what my, uh, my thoughts, you know, one of the things it's, it's exactly what Sherry said. I say the Appalachian palate is heavy on vinegar and black pepper. 
but I happened to be sipping a, a glass of whiskey at the same time. Um, and I, I think that stuck in the person's head. So they, they quoted me as saying that the, uh, the Appalachian palate is, is whiskey and black pepper. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me. Not totally wrong. No, it's not. It's wrong. it's definitely a huge part of mine. Uh, it was that was obvious at that moment. <laughs> yeah. but, no, I just think that it's you know it is very produce driven. Meat was a condiment for economic necessity and for a lot of other reasons. And plus, that's a delicious way to cook. It's it's actually quite Mediterranean. To come back to this thing is you know it's agrarian. It's uh, and. Uh, seriously tied to the land. And I think that's another characteristic of just mountain people in general. You know, we're we're really tied to our land in ways that you see only in other geographically specific places. I think you'll see places in the low country, maybe in the Delta and so forth, where the land is the defining, you know, the, the perhaps the most singularly, singularly defining thing in the way people live and what they do. And we're absolutely that way about our land also. Mm. Yeah. And what are the one of the weird things I had a discussion with? Uh, I was on a panel for the Virginia uh, the Virginia Commission of the Arts, and looking at most art forms and looking at, at food as a, as a culinary art um, in Appalachia, the food portion is the one that that doesn't hit a, a lot of the other art forms since they are so rooted in the place. They all are obviously, like you were saying, like the food being rooted, but the music's rooted and. Um, a lot of the other art forms have, have dealt with the, uh, the what what I've always called the the deliverance factor that that stigma that that deliverance put on these other art mm-hmm. forms because they're tied to the place. But food really kind of transcends that. Like people don't when when we talk about Appalachian food, and you know I know you and I do this a lot. You know we talk about it with a lot of people. That's nothing that ever really comes up you know that 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 stigma has never really translated to the food and and I've, I've never been quite sure why or how that that is but that's that's one of the the, the reasons why as I say you know it's it's it can be a wonderful economic developer in the region because that's that's mm-hmm. something that that trans you know it, it doesn't have that stigma that a lot of the the country you know you know forces upon a lot of the stuff that we do and who we are here I agree with that if they have any stigma at all it's that they're you know painting with some gross broad derisive brush about being southern and we kind of get white you know caught up in that but i don't but i agree otherwise it's not it seems to be more immune from that yeah. than some other other parts of our culture that sounds great yeah. <laughs> <laughs> working in an art form that's immune from all those stereotypes know, sounds right? like it's, it's amazing been, i know <laughs> that's great um, well, so you both have talked a little bit about this in, in moments, but I'm curious, too, about some of the, like, maybe lesser-known influences for Appalachian food. So, Travis, you were talking a little bit about some of the things that you um, learned to cook growing oh, up, growing right? Up. And so um, I'm wondering if there's there's something you could talk about about the ways that kind of migration in and out of the region has affected Appalachian food, both historically, right, if we think about coal mine towns, the oh, boom yeah, of coal, you know, just the number of immigrants from Eastern Europe, from mm-hmm. all over the, you know, deep south um, that were coming to the region, but then also maybe more more recent patterns of migration in and out of the region of immigration. How does um, that play into Appalachian food? You know, uh, one of the one of the things that I've been fascinated with uh, is uh, with the inward migration, especially, you know, um, early on. 
was the you know a lot of people talk about you know the, the Scotch Irish, which you know I'm I'm not gonna I'm I'm virtually 100% Scotch Irish. Um, there a lot of us are in Appalachia, but uh, or at least you know fairly Scotch Irish. But the the Eastern European and the German, the Hungarian, and and even you know a, a large Jewish population was was oh, yeah. here. Um, and and you can see those influences, maybe not a hundred percent directly in in a lot of things. And one of the things that I've been been you know searching and pouring over is is something that that Miss Sherry Castle makes the best version of I've ever had in my life, <laughs> apple stack cake. Um, there's there's a lot of these amazing German Jewish and you know Hungarian Jewish and Eastern European Jewish uh, cakes that are they're very very similar and have very very similar ingredients and. Uh, and as for inward migration, the, the one that, that, that fascinates me and a lot of people don't know about is, is oysters. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of, uh, a lot of people would, uh, would give money to the engineers going to the coast, going to Norfolk or Baltimore, uh, to bring oysters back for the holidays. I know, you know, Sherry and I have had long talks about this, the fact that we had oysters when we were you know, around the holiday time. And it's actually the where the old saying about you only eat oysters in months that end in R comes from because those were the months that it was safe to have a train travel five or six oh. days back and not have okay. oysters get you know rancid or freeze. Um, there's That's all kinds of those like little tidbits that you know I, th- I think a lot of us have 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 you know they they were in plain sight a lot of them but I think a lot of us you know just never really connected the dots or. Or uh, never had the opportunity to, and and now you know you seeing these these it's like holy crap that's that's dead on that's amazing those those are like two of the ones that stick out in my head all the time. And I would say that there were a lot of Italian people. I mean, you know, the pepperoni rolls in, in West Virginia, everybody talks about. I mean, that's a pretty obvious example. But there were people coming in from all over, and there are, and, you know, there still are for a variety of reasons. And I find that, you know, if you can figure out some sort of a food preservation thing, like I had a completely English-language-free conversation with a Korean woman that had moved to Watauga County over kimchi. Both of us really understood the power and persuasion of fermented cabbage. Mm. And so, you know, I think that there are, you know, there are these, I've often thought, you know, in all my vast spare time, I want to do a project where I look at where you have similar practices across the globe, perhaps based on elevation and so forth. And I thought, you know, this woman grew up in snow country in Korea, and they grew a lot of cabbage and they had to make it keep. I bet there's other things around the globe we would find in common with Appalachian food, again, in that response to climate and growing conditions. I just haven't had time to look into it. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, but it's you know it, I always say it was it was it was really kind of the the first big melting pot of of the country here uh-huh. in Appalachia. It was the first the first point where a lot of these cultures melded and clashed and and whatever. And and there's there's a whole whole bunch of them, and and you know a lot of them aren't you know people people don't see them because you got to dig a little bit, but they're there, and it's 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 amazing you know with Native American, African, uh-huh. Hungarian. Irish, you know, that's, that's, that's a crazy bunch right there, but, uh, but it turned into, you know, these influences, you know, with, with the, you know, as she was saying with the the preservation, you know, there's, there's German techniques and Native American techniques that are all melded together into these, these, you know, individual dishes that if, if you don't do that little bit of digging, you, you just don't see it, but it's, it's completely there. Hmm. Well, I wonder if you all, um, have anything you could talk about, about sort of 
Native American food in the region. Um, thinking about Thanksgiving coming up. <laughs> um, wonder, do you know of recipes? What are, what are some of those influences in, in the food? Oh, you got to go candy roaster on this and travel. A hundred percent. I'm going to I'm going to alley oop it over there. You take right. it in. <laughs> um, so so one of my, one of my favorite uh, vegetables in the world. I actually worked uh, very heavily with the University of South Carolina. Um, and a professor named uh, David Shields, who works predominantly with uh, Southern food, and oddly enough, uh, the silent film era of cinema. Um, mm. Two two completely divergent topics that he specializes in. But is he uh, going to make a silent film about Southern food? I wish he would. Um, <laughs> and he's and he's also an English professor. So like all like he's it's actually like all of that's completely in the wheelhouse of what my brain is. Um, but he uh, he works heavily with uh, a group called uh, the. Uh, slow food and they have a thing called the arc of taste where they they uh number one save seeds but they also help to propagate these seeds so that they don't go away and they work with uh, animals as well which is a really cool program but uh, i was able to work with with him and a couple growers in north carolina and north georgia and able to uh, uh save the candy roaster squash from extinction and not personally but to be a part of of helping save it uh, and uh, to help propagate it, uh, it was originally uh, hybridized by the Cherokee in uh, in North Carolina in the 1870s. That's the, or at least that's the first uh, written record of it. Um, we think it obviously goes back way further, and and it goes into northern Georgia where it's it's a slightly different hybrid. But um, in in a lot of the the counties of, of central Appalachia, you know, like here in here in Letcher and across the mountain in Wise and. Uh, even into Tennessee, a lot of a lot of folks grew candy roaster squash instead of sweet potatoes, or instead of butternut squash, or uh, instead of, of my least favorite squash in the world, which is a very very long story and personal joke between <laughs> Sherry and I. But the Kushaw squash, um, <laughs> we don't have time to get into that, but it's not my favorite. <laughs> we <anymore>. might, we <laughs> might. <laughs> uh, but uh, it's it, you know we would we would make uh, candy roaster pies instead of. Uh, of uh, pumpkin pies, or instead mm -hmm. of sweet potato pies, um, hmm. which is even weirder because a lot of a lot of people in Appalachia would always make sweet potato pie instead of pumpkin pie. So it was it was kind of a different weird little triangle there. But that that's one of my favorite things. Um, I uh, I've, I've been working on my Cherokee pronunciation, and I'm not good enough to, to say any of it on air. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I've I've been lucky enough to work with a lot of folks. Uh, in uh, in near Asheville and do a couple dinners of, of indigenous Cherokee foods and you know they're they're really 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 cool and really really important to this region. Um, I don't know that any my, my my family would be totally weirded out if I served some of it at you know there's this one uh, that I do that's a uh, it's a porridge of beans and uh, uh, hickory nuts and it's like a sweet thing it's like mm -hmm. pinto beans and and hickory nuts and chestnuts and um, when I first served it, everybody was like, what is it? Sweet, <laughs> sweet beans. Um, but that's, yeah, that's one of the cool things that, that I really enjoy. Um, but it's, the influence is definitely there. Yeah. I just wrote an article. It appeared in the October issue of Our State magazine. Our State is based in North Carolina, but it, people all over the country read it. It's a really great magazine. And I just wrote a feature story on the roots of Cherokee farming and how you can go trace it back and see some of those um, initial practices and points of view and principles in what's now being called contemporary Appalachian and Southern cooking. You know, this whole 
back to the land thing, well, they didn't have to go back to it. I'm oversimplifying it. It was a much better article. You've got to trust me on this. <laughs> but it was going back to that initial three sisters concept. And, there was, you know, uh, the beans and the corn and the pumpkins or the squashes growing together and how that was such the perfect you know, uh, ecosystem, symbiotic uh, ecosystem. And then there was like the fourth little sister that didn't get any attention, which are the weeds and the greens and things that grew up between the rows that attracted beneficial ex, uh, insects and also gave you a, a fresh green element and all that. And some of the folks that Travis was referring to, they have done some of these dinners and all. I talked to a couple of them and, you know, it's still, um, I think that you can, you really still in Appalachian food see the essential requirement in a lot of our dishes, having some combination of the beans and the pumpkins and the corn, you know, not just corn on the cob, but the dried corn in the cornmeal. And if Travis has some of his candy roasters and other things, on my porch right this minute, I have a pile of candy roasters and pumpkins that I'm saving up to, to work with. I've got them outside where it's good and cold <laughs> to use for Thanksgiving next week. I've never, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't know that I still needed those until I tasted them again. And it like triggers like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, that's what this is supposed to taste like. My wife is getting so peeved at me because uh, my entire dining room table has been nothing but about 360 pounds of candy roaster squashes mm-hmm. that I've had mm-hmm. curing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. and I don't have yes. anywhere else to put them. And she's like, yep. we have to use this to eat at some point. Exactly. <laughs> and I was exactly. like, what, the table or the squash? And she's like, both. <laughs> <laughs> True, both. <laughs> You're listening to Mountain Talk on WMMT 88.7 FM. Real People Radio from the heart of the hills in Whitesburg, Kentucky. Today's program is all about food, featuring a recorded conversation between Chef Travis Milton and food writer Sherry Castle. Stay tuned because we wrap up with a few favorite Thanksgiving recipes from the Apple Shop staff. Well, in a minute here, you just mentioned Thanksgiving. I'd love to shift gears to talk a little bit about Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving foods. Um, but I'm curious about just from what you were just talking about, about some of the weeds that grew up between the rows, about sort of um, about wild foods, about things mm. that aren't necessarily grown in a garden and how that plays into um, either your cooking or your food writing, Sherry, or just Appalachian food generally. Well, I am no real expert on that. I mean, I know how to go out and find a few things, but I leave a lot of the foraging to people that are you know, more proficient than I, although I wish I did know more about it. It's a life goal to get, to get back to that a little bit more. And um, I, I think that part of it, when I'm writing about it, I don't write about it much because I think <laughs> it's not, um, I think that it's such a rare and risky thing that it's not at this point available to most of my readers. I really don't talk about it all that much. I, um, I, it's more of a personal interest than anything I think I could sell. And that makes me sad to say, but it's, that's where we are with it right now. Um, uh, for Thanksgiving, for Thanksgiving, you know, I write about all this fancy stuff, but we're real purists. We castles are just, I mean, we want the basics and so forth. But I would say that there's definitely mountain influence. Like, I can assure you that there will be a pot of green beans that my dad and I put up this summer. I'm going to have chestnuts and apples from my cousin's farm in my dressing. I've said mountain southern America. If you really want to know what 
the essence of Thanksgiving is for people, it's what they will call and eat and uh, service dressing or stuffing or something. That's really where, the, where people's loyalties lie is in the dressing. And so mine's going to be cornbread-based with cornmeal that my dad and I ground with things out of family gardens. And that, that's my idea of uh, that and good gravy is, my, is what I give thanks for. <laughs> One thing I've found is people outside of Appalachia don't know what I'm talking about when I say dressing. They think that I'm putting ranch in my turkey. <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh, like, uh-huh, no, it's uh-huh. it's the same as stuffing. It's it's you guys call it stuffing, we call it dressing. Right. Because right. we don't always <laughs> stick it in the turkey. We don't always always stick it in a dish. Yes, yep. it's See? in a dish. You See? bake it in a dish. Yep. <laughs> and that's so so it doesn't get nothing's getting stuffed. Right. <laughs> Except for right. you at the table. Exactly. Um, exactly. But when I think about growing up, turkey, we only ate turkey at Thanksgiving. I mean, and so you got one, if you were really lucky, two turkey sandwiches a year. I mean, now, you know, you can get turkey, you know, at the, at the cruiser's gas station or whatever. But turkey was a really special thing back then. And um, there is something about it. I think the best turkey is the parts you pick off when you're in the kitchen before you bring it out of the kitchen. When you're just standing there and it's you and the turkey and you pick the crispy bits off, that's the best part. It uh, is. Oh yeah, when the skin's still crunchy before it hits yeah, the table boy. and sits there for a minute. <laughs> that's that's why I'm always willing to cook. I was always willing to be in there with the cook so I could pull off the skin around the uh, mm-hmm. the turkey legs that was gonna just fall off anyways. Exactly. <laughs> there's two little oysters out yes, there, and yes, then it's like, you, yeah, I'm done. Yep. I'm done. <laughs> that's what I always did. Still do. <laughs> Um, one of one of the one of the things that uh, always spoke to me at Thanksgiving, and it's something completely. It's I, I think it's a hundred and twenty percent just something that my family did, and and I I, I believe it was really spoke to uh, the the subsistent factor of, of of Thanksgiving. I think it was something my grandma just threw together because she didn't have a whole lot in the cupboard, uh, but she made she every year she made this. And and I'll preface this was with she didn't put it out as a dessert, but she would make this rice pudding with canned pineapple Amen. and caramelized marshmallows <laughs> on top of it. Yum. And it was never uh-huh. ever uh-huh. put out as a dessert, even though it was sweet. It would it was at the table right beside everything else. And every Thanksgiving I still make it to this day. It's not Thanksgiving if I don't have that. Travis, I make it except for us. It was Easter. It was rice, essentially rice pudding. My grandmother used pet milk, canned oh, milk. Oh yeah, oh yeah, evaporated milk pineapple. always. Pineapple. It, it's thick, almost like a risotto, and you ate it as a side dish, not as a dessert. Now we didn't do the marshmallows, but we had canned pineapples that were. But we always ate it with the Easter ham, and I've been trying to recreate that for twenty years, <laughs> and I'm almost there, but not quite. But yes, my my life's journey will be complete if I see my daughter grown up happy, and I can make that that pineapple <laughs> rice. <laughs> I like your style. <laughs> Well, what now, are Now, see, there's oh. another thing. That can't be coincidence that we're I the agree. only two families in Appalachia that ever did that. I agree. And I think maybe it's food of celebration. Mountain people are not rice people. Mountain people are potato people. Mm-hmm. And so rice was unusual, special occasion food, and but yet it didn't cost that much. And we, for some reason, we liked it sweet. And um, so were so were pineapples. You know, that was the canned canned thing. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. when I went down off the mountain to go to college and went through the cafeteria line, and they put gravy on my rice, I thought those people had lost their damn mind. <laughs> I really did. I like if they had ladled gravy over my Cheerios one morning, I would not have been more shocked. I'm like. 
what in the world are they thinking? So, see, you know, yeah, <laughs> we had a wave. <laughs> well, what are some other maybe um, favorite Thanksgiving foods, Thanksgiving stories, or even recipes um, that folks could find if they don't already have family recipes passed down, that, which lots of people do, but... My favorite thing was occasionally we would, uh, and this was really the only time of year that we would ever have it, is we would have a uh, we would have turkey, but we would also have a big chunk of pork. Sometimes it would be a pork butt, sometimes it would be a shoulder, sometimes it would be a tenderloin. It was kind of just whatever was available and and approachable price wise or what you know was affordable. Um, with just tons of sauerkraut, just cooked down, super long and super mm-hmm. slow. And like that, just that pork and sauerkraut has always spoken to me. And it was, that was what, that was what I looked forward to more than the turkey. I love, I, I love turkey, but I don't have a turkey tattooed on me. So that, that's, mm, that's, I, I do, I do have a pig tattooed on me. So uh, that was, well, that you was know, we mind. ate that. We didn't eat it at Thanksgiving. That's really interesting. I would go back to my dressing. I think I make a fine pan of dressing, <laughs> and, you know, could send, send the recipe around, you know, because. You know, there's there's cornbread and chestnuts and apples, and it, it's pr- it's pretty good stuff. Um, and we also, you know, the the tried out the different kinds of pies. There would always be a big bevy of pies of different kinds. And Thanksgiving would be the launch party of the holiday candies. Back when sweets and treats oh, yeah. were, in fact, treats. Um, my grandmother had these these plates. That she would put all these candies on, and we called it collectively. My cousin and I plate candy. To me, <laughs> Thanksgiving is the day I start getting that. Like, mm, I think I have a taste for some plate candy. You know, things like that. Hmm. Peanut butter pinwheels. Peanut butter pinwheels. I'm actually doing that at an Appalachian event in Hyman, Kentucky, next month. I am teaching the populace that wants to come learn how to make peanut butter pinwheels. Is that with dumplings and dancing? Exactly. Yeah, I'm coming down. I'm coming down for that one, actually. Yep. Can you talk yep. a little bit yep. more about dumplings and dancing? <laughs> <laughs> See how I segue that? Yes, radio power. I was I was hoping we'd get there anyways. I was going to ask if it didn't come up. <laughs> yeah, it's the first weekend in December at the Hyman Settlement School, and it's um, two, two and a half days of workshops and storytelling and music and dancing. And my workshop is, is I'm going to do old-fashioned Christmas candy. And we're going to make a couple there, and then I'm going to bring samples of a couple more. And um, in addition to people that have signed up for the weekend, which I hope a lot more people will, there's some component of that where people from the community are going to come, and we're going to have candy for them too. But it's a really amazing Almost, you know, old-fashioned Christmas party. Even they don't call it Christmas, where you have a lot of those elements of community coming together and and um and sharing things. I will totally be your sous chef and repay the the favor that you've paid me multiple times. Well, that sounds <laughs> that sounds great. Awesome. Um, and um, they have a website and a Facebook page. Just go to Dumplings and Dancing or just Hyman Settlement School, and people can read all about it. Great. Well, that's exciting to know that you'll be back in the area, both of you soon. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Um, where Where else can people find you? Um, Sherry, do you have any more upcoming events people can find? I you have at? events all over the place. Um, my website is sherrycastle.com. There's things like that. I have been traveling a lot. 
I'm actually, this sounds really crazy to say, but I'm actually going out to Burbank next month and Ooh. cooking pie for a TV show. Cool. Um, and, um, yeah, I'm around. I write a lot for magazines. But if people go to my website, sherrycastle.com, they can figure out where I am and either find me or avoid me, depending on what they seek <laughs> to do. Nice. Well, and so, Travis, we haven't talked about your restaurants. That seems like a place people will be able to find you sometimes, maybe. Uh, probably all the time. <laughs> um, they, they they tend to be very much like a very small child. You can't you can't turn your back on them very often, <laughs> <laughs> at least when they're young. Um, so, yeah, I'll be opening up one uh, called Milton's uh, in St. Paul uh, in, in coordination with the uh, the Western Front Hotel. Uh, St. Paul, Virginia, not uh, Minnesota. Um <laughs> <laughs> Some people do confuse that, and they're like, "What? You're, why'd you move back to Bristol to open up a restaurant in Minnesota?" I'm like, you're, 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 no, no. Um, I was going to say, did you hear what you just said? I mean, you know, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, but uh, that one should be open uh, here in in you know three to four weeks uh, before the year is out. Um, then I've got uh, two in the works in uh, Bristol, uh, Virginia. Uh, one will be called Shovel and Pick, which will be kind of a, a fine dining, uh, uh, different kind of take. And when I say fine dining, it's not going to be like white tablecloths and crap on the table. It'll just be, you know, kind of an, an elevated, different, more modernist take on Appalachian food. Um, and uh, one called uh, Simply Grand, which will be housed in the same building, which happens to be the old Simply Grand Flower Factory in Bristol, which is super cool. Uh, and Simply Grand will be kind of a more grandmotherly take on, on uh, Appalachian food with a little bit of, of a lot of the influences of the South and Appalachian food kind of mixed in, you know, a little, kind of, a little more like kitschy, you know, approachable to, to tourists and, you know, hopefully they'll all be seriously approachable. But, um, yeah, you can, usually, you can usually find me there or on the road. Great. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Great. And I don't have a website, so I can't. I can't pitch any that. You can find me on Twitter ranting about politics often, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't even. I'm, I'm, in, I'm calling down the thunder yeah, saying yeah. that, so I should probably not give out my Twitter handle. <laughs> <laughs> well, great. Um, well, I what I have one more question, and then we'll maybe okay. wrap up. But could you talk a little bit? You just talked a little bit about the difference between some of those, but um. The difference between the more modern take, I'm curious about how that's going to be different from some of the stuff you've been talking about today. So, uh, the, the the more modern take is it's it's not necessarily more modern in in a, in a procedural kind of way. It's more modern in kind of a thought process. Um, uh, a, a really good example is again going back to those uh, those greasy beans and the process of turning them into shuck beans or leather britches where you dry them. I I look at that bean in a completely different way now than I would have, you know, as, as a child or, or even 10 years ago. I don't know what Sherry's doing. I think she's moving. Um, it was my cat. Oh, oh Lord. The no, cat you're fine. got in a box. <laughs> of course it did. That's what cats do. That's a cat's do. favorite thing. <laughs> Especially um, when they are supposed to be quiet. Oh, yeah. Exactly, exactly. Oh, yeah. But, uh, you know, looking at that greasy bean in 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 a lot of different ways from a lot of the different uh food cultures that i've been able to work with and experience so you know one of the things i I make miso out of those and i do this Mm -hmm. this dish of you know i turn these these beans into a miso and it's this this catfish dish where 
um, the broth off of the the regular leather britches gets turned into this frothed, foamy dashi broth, which is yeah, again all Appalachian ingredients, but looking at it from from different different cultures' points of view, um, and uh, you, know, you know the the, the miso is like super cool and. Um, yeah. It's it's really yeah. it's it really is just just looking at it from from just all of the the influences that when when I say it's kind of my chapter in the book it's it's looking at it from the point of view of of really to be honest like how my my great grandmother would have looked at it because I I've always said that one of the 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 greatest facets of Appalachian foodways and cuisine is that it's so driven by creativity it's driven by you know subsistence of 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 you know crops you know you're 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 getting what you can when you can and you're doing what you can with that and you had to be creative you had to use everything you had to look at things from different points of view and that's how we get you know a lot of these these crazy weird dishes that we're talking about that um and it's looking at that from that point of view. It's just you know I have I've experienced a lot of different things than she would have experienced. So I'm I'm trying to 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 keep that same mindset, but just use what I have at my disposal with these same ingredients and just seeing it in a different light. And I want to say similar to that because you know I don't cook in restaurants like Travis does, but when I try to describe my food, especially my Appalachian food, to people, sometimes I will just call it something different to lower a barrier to what people might have an expectation. I said one time, I thought, yeah, that's, that's a pretty good sentence. I said that if you invite some of your foodie friends, I hate that word, but you know what I mean, yeah. your foodie friends over for guanciale, they'll run right over. If you invite them over for hog jowls, they'll just run. <laughs> that's <laughs> exactly yeah. the same thing. Yeah, exactly. It just, you know, I, sometimes I'll, because like I did, I did a, a pretty fancy dinner at uh, an event here in Chapel Hill a couple of weeks ago. And all I was really doing was cooking some corn and some beans and some tomatoes and some good smoky bacon. But I didn't call it that. I called it fresh corn risotto with herb braised butter beans with a smoked tomato sauce. I called it all that because that is more likely for people that might be unfamiliar with the concept to walk up to and get a bowl than to call it something something else. And I'm not trying to put on airs. I'm just trying to um, lower barriers to people deciding they don't like something or are too good for it before they ever put it in their mouth. I just have to use a lot of things with quotation marks because I have to kind of bridge that, that same gap of, of – I'm trying to get people that aren't familiar with it to eat these things, but I'm also trying right. to get the people that are familiar with the initial subject matter, the substrate. I, I, I don't know why I said substrate. I got all scientific for a second. <laughs> um, I feel like I'm talking about vinegar again. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the initial subject, you know, like saying leather britches and just not giving all the details, just leather britches in quotation marks and let someone else do that because it's something that's mm -hmm. approachable to someone here that they they have a cursory, you know, at, at the very least knowledge of, but it leaves it kind of open-ended. <laughs> right, right. And that way, that way it's not crazy. I have not realized I was doing, but I do that with my own family sometimes is, you know, who can be a bit suspicious about what I do for a living that sometimes I will call something yeah, I work backwards and forwards to just try to yep. lower barriers and get people to 
you know, shut up and open their mouths and eat this good food. Yeah, the first time I served my brother creme brulee, he said, what What the hell is creme brulee? And I said, just eat it. And he ate it, and he said, oh, hell, that, that's just pudding. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's pudding. Uh-huh. <laughs> that's going to be what they put on our, on our heads. That should totally, yeah. Oh, hell, it's just pudding. <laughs> oh. Oh. Well, thank you both so much. Um, it's been fun talking with you, and I'm hungry now. No, oh, I know. I wish we were all together and could sit down and eat now. That would be the perfect oh, finale to this. <laughs> Absolutely. But we can put it off till dumplings and dancing. That's right. That's right. That's right. We can all do it then. That sounds great. Well, thank you so much. Thank you, and hope hope you have a good Thanksgiving. Thank you. Miss thank you, you, Sherry. My favorite people will be here. So. Oh, good. Good. Bye. Miss you, Sherry. Bye. Bye. You too, buddy. All right. Hope you say I'll see you soon. All right? All right. Hello, my name is Daryl Royce, and I am financial director here at Apple Shop, and I also am co-owner of Heritage Kitchen in downtown Whitesburg, so I thought I would share my grandmother's recipe for transparent pie, which is sort of an anomaly with names. Um, Most of you will know this as chess pie, but where I'm from in northeastern Kentucky, we have just uh, graciously named this transparent pie over the years. So I'm going to read you the ingredients and then the recipe. And uh, this was written on... uh, piece of paper back in the 1950s, so um, bear with me. So the ingredients are one egg, one cup of sugar, a half a cup of butter, one round tablespoon of flour, and three tablespoons of water. And then for flavoring, you can either use vanilla or almond extract, and that will be one teaspoon. So first you're going to um, beat the egg until it is mixed well. And then you're going to add the sugar and beat that together again as well. Then you're going to add the flour, butter, and mix again. So basically you're just adding ingredients one at a time until you get the mixture. Then you're going to add the water and flavoring, whichever one you chose. And then mix that completely till it's thoroughly, thoroughly mixed. You put that in your favorite pie crust and you bake until firm and brown. The temperature should probably be about 350 to 375 degrees. And the time it's going to take you is probably about 25 to 30 minutes. Uh, It should be firm when it is completely done. So... I hope you enjoy that. Uh, It is a family favorite of ours. So that is uh, my family's recipe for transparent pie from my grandmother. So thank you very much and happy Thanksgiving. Hi, 
Uh, my name is Michella Phipps, and I'm from Neon, Kentucky, and I will be sharing my memo, Gertrude Phipps's dressing recipe. Uh, this is something that's been made in my family for years now, and it's just one of the special things that we make only during this time of year. First, you'll start out with three to four stalks of celery chopped and one onion chopped, and you will parboil that. You'll need two skillets of cornbread crumbled when cooled, eight boiled eggs chopped, one can of chicken broth, and three to four tablespoons of Miracle Whip. You'll begin to sage with one teaspoon and add it to your taste and salt and pepper to your taste as well. You'll mix it in a pot and then you'll put it into a baking pan. You'll bake it for one hour at 325 degrees covered and then you'll uncover it until it's browned and dried to your liking. You can also add uh, meat from the giblets or hot sausage or regular mild sausage but my family, we usually use the hot sausage because that's what she used. And we serve it every Thanksgiving. And this is the only time of year that we make it. And I hope you all enjoy this recipe and have a happy Thanksgiving. it for this week's edition of Mountain Talk, featuring a recorded conversation between Southwest Virginia native and chef Travis Milton and Western North Carolina-raised food writer Sherry Castle. We wrapped up with a few favorite Thanksgiving recipes from the Apple Shop staff. Music on this episode comes from the June Apple recording of Farrell Lambert and the old-time music makers playing Turkey in the Straw. If you'd like to listen to this or previous episodes of Mountain Talk again, visit our website at WMMT.org or download Mountain Talk as a podcast on SoundCloud or Stitcher. I've been your host, Rachel Geringer, and from all of us at WMMT, Happy Thanksgiving! Thanksgiving.